Well, this is going to be a very special lecture because it's number seven, and of course that's the number of completion. So, uh, well, real profound, I know. Does that mean we're finished? Uh, we're not quite. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about truth and counseling. It's the first time I've given this presentation, this lecture. It's, uh, I try to do at least one new talk a year for our veterans who come back from year to year. Um, the topic of truth and counseling is, I believe, going to be very important because it has to do with whether you see yourself in counseling as a steward or a stewardess or an inventor. If you're a steward or a stewardess, that means you've been put in trust with the truth, in this case, and God is calling you to be faithful to that truth and to pass it on. And if we pass on a different message that's not biblical, that's not Christ-centered, uh, then we are accountable, and James tells us that teachers will be judged more strictly. That's not one of my favorite verses, by the way. <laughs> um, but uh, let me just um, comment on what led to, to this, uh, this talk. A friend of mine from my days at Biblical Seminary, no, not cemetery, uh, uh, in Pennsylvania, I was there from 78 to 81, doing a Master of Divinity degree, and... Uh, it was a, a seminary that really was based on studying the Bible. It was called Biblical Seminary, still is. And we were taught you know, Greek and Hebrew and, and theology, but the focus was on an accurate understanding of the Bible, defending the faith. And back then, they were warning us about neo-orthodoxy. I'll mention it in our lecture here. Neo means new, orthodoxy, uh, what is considered sound in the faith. And Karl Barth and um, Boltmann and others were saying that uh, the Bible was, was important and we can have a, a, a vital faith experience with God, but they said that the Bible becomes the Word of God as you interact with it. You know, if you believe it, if you let it work in your life, then it becomes subjectively the Word of God. And my professors were warning us, the Bible doesn't just become the Word of God, it is the Word of God. And it's Second. Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So fast forward uh, a number of years, uh, a couple years ago my friend Terry starts emailing me about a dialogue between uh, the faculty members and the alumni where uh, at least one of the professors um, was actually advocating the theology of Karl Barth and neo-orthodoxy. So uh, a generation ago when I was there, they were warning us, and now this fellow is actually saying that we really need to, to study Barth and, and follow his model. He's also uh, uh, John Franke, F-R-A-N-K-E, is the professor. And he's been writing books about um, uh, what you might consider the, uh, the emerging church movement, and emphasizing that theology is not a static once-for-all thing, but it's fluid, and uh, there's an ongoing dialogue of deciding and discovering what is true. And so um, as I started to learn more about uh, the emerging church, I found out about a kind of a think tank or a cutting-edge group, cutting-edge in the wrong sense, called Emergent Village, with authors like Brian McLaren and Doug Padgett and others. And so um, I started finding out information about that group and realizing that they're, they're speaking to, to major denominations. Uh, and yet their view um, is reinterpreting the cross, uh, reinterpreting the authority of Scripture, and reinterpreting truth. And that is really serious. Yeah. And so as I thought, my alma mater, I, I wouldn't think biblical seminary would be uh, compromising in such key areas. Then I got a document from the Association of Exchange Life Ministries, of which I'm a member, and uh, there was a paper circulated uh, talking about the training that uh, Exchange Life Counseling does. We need to be sensitive to the postmodern culture, and uh, this paper was quoting Brian McLaren and others. Um, the problem here is that although we do want to be aware of our culture and communicate in a way that's meaningful, we call that contextualizing. We want to look for a big word. We need to contextualize the message and communicate it in a meaningful way, but without compromise. Amen. That's the issue. And so, 
as I read this document, I realized he's starting out with good intentions. You know, we need to be aware of our postmodern culture, but then he starts recommending in his reading list people like Brian McLaren and others that I'll be quoting from. So I'm thinking that if, as an exchange-like movement, if we let go of the biblical concept of truth, the biblical concept uh, and reality of the cross, and the authority of Scripture, then uh, we're going to be like a ship without a rudder, blown to and fro with every wind of doctrine, and we won't have a Christ-centered transformational counseling model anymore. So that's why I'm asking you to walk through these notes with me and, and look at it correctly. True. I, I work with uh, hundred or so guys who are church planters, and they've come, some have come out of seminary, some have not. Uh, they're they're postmoderns or whatever, and and uh, they go off to these these conferences, and and the conferences in and of themselves are are, are not bad, um, but they're teaching methodology. And they are many times assuming that you have the theology, and and so what happens is these guys, a lot of them, don't have a clue about theology, and they're just practicing. And so it's the idea is whatever works, whoever can help me advance where I want to go, and and they're floundering. And I, what I found in working with them is, you know, when you start helping them become grounded in the truth, understand what that is, um, their whole ministry changes, and, and they actually see fruitfulness in their ministry at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, but there, a lot of these guys are searching for something that will reach, I mean, their heart is to reach people and minister to people and connect with people, but they've never really been taught that how important truth is to make that happen. That's so true. Thanks for that comment. So really, pragmatism, what works, becomes right. their main value instead of the Word of God and, and fidelity you know, to His truth. Uh, you can have a full auditorium with the greatest uh, uh, technology. Uh, Michael was talking something about worship and uh, technology and those themes. And you can have a full building with all kinds of people waving their hands in the air. That doesn't mean that it's worship that's acceptable and in spirit and in truth. Yes, that's all, that's all uh, uh, circumstantial. So... Uh, we need to go back and, and ask, you know, what is the truth? What is our stewardship? And we're going to look at it. Uh, I have quite a bit of material here, but I'll just kind of walk us through it briefly. I hope that you can um, review some of these scriptures. And let me just start out with a theme that exchange life counseling is an application of biblical truth by the spirit of truth. That sound right? So it's biblical truth, and we want the Holy Spirit to be the counselor through us. Uh, read with me Proverbs 23.23. Buy the truth and do not sell it. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. So here 3,000 years ago, the scripture doesn't apologize as saying that truth is valuable and it's practical and it's so important that we need to, in a sense, buy it in terms of our time and commitment and study. So let's look at some clarifications to start with. True doctrine is foundational to victorious living. Sometimes people downplay doctrine. Oh, that's just doctrine or doctrine. But doctrine means teaching. And uh, what we're learning about Christ is our life. That's teaching, but it's dynamic, <laughs> transformational teaching. And yesterday, as Paul led us through the steps to freedom, it's about a truth encounter. And uh, the message is foundational. Remember how in, in Paul's letters, for example, in Ephesians, the first three chapters are doctrinal. They're emphasizing the teaching of uh the reality of Christ in us. And then the second half of the book, 4, 5, and 6, are primarily practical. Starts, therefore, let us walk worthy. So the therefore is the hinge where you go from doctrine to practice. Doctrine is never considered an end in and of itself, right? It's considered dynamic truth that needs to impact how we think and how we speak and how we behave and how we live. Nevertheless, if we just look at the practicalities and say doctrine isn't important, then it's like saying that the foundation of your house isn't important. Because Christ said if we follow him and we obey his word, we're going to be building on the rock. We need that solid rock foundation where someone can have the greatest uh, bunch of people and, and uh, high-tech uh, methodology, and yet it could be building on sand. And at the judgment seat of Christ, Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 3 that the wood, hay, and stubble you know, are going to go up in smoke. But the gold, silver, and precious stone of Christ-centered, truth-based ministry is going to stand and, and be 
glorifying to God. Pontius Pilate asked that famous question, what is truth? Truth, here's the working definition. Truth is what corresponds to God's being, God's revelation, and God's created order. So notice that unless we ground our concept of truth on God, it's going to be relative, it's going to be changeable. But if we anchor it on God, that's the basis of our, our view of truth. So it corresponds to God's being. The Bible says God is true. He cannot lie. His revelation, and he says in his word that, that my word is truth. And also his created order. So uh, some of you really are into to science and math and things like that. I've spoken to you. And science is another word for knowledge. You're discovering God's created order and that's what put man on the moon and, and developed the computers that we peck away at and get frustrated at all the time. <laughs> and so knowledge that is based on discovering the way God made things is part of our privilege, isn't it? As those who are made in God's image. He's given us that capacity to discover what he's made and cooperate with God as those made in his image. But we're not to invent a new system of math where now 2 plus 2 equals 5. Although when I was in taking math, it might have helped. But, um, you know, we can't reinvent uh, out of a sense of entitlement what is true because that's delusion and we know that the enemy, his main truth, as we were talking about, is to deceive. So truth is uh, what sets us free. Although no one has knowledge of all truth, which is omniscience, omni, all, science, all truth, all knowledge, or exhaustive understanding of the truth, God has made us able to know truth and absolutes. We may not be able to comprehend reality, but we can apprehend knowledge. So, those who are um, prone to philosophy and are uncomfortable, as our current culture is, with the idea of absolute truth, might say something like this. Um, do you think you know the sum total of everything in the universe? Well, of course not. Well, if you don't if you can't comprehend all reality, how can you be sure of what you believe about this right here is true? Oh, yeah, you got a point there. Maybe I can't. Yeah. But see, they're, com they're confusing um, having comprehensive knowledge of all reality. Only God has that. They're confusing that with being able to apprehend specific truths that God has revealed. So think of those two words. Comprehend, exhaustive knowledge. No one has that in the full sense of the term. God. But we can apprehend, we can have objective, true knowledge of what God has revealed, based on his person, based on his word, based on his created order. So that was one of the things that stuck with me from biblical seminary, the difference between comprehension and apprehension. Does that make sense? You may want to keep track of those two words that could come in handy. So essential doctrine, another point I'd like to make. We're not saying that essentials are not different than distinctives. Um, in this room, we may have differences of viewpoint on water baptism, or on what Bible translation to use, or, or certain aspects of worship, or uh, different views about the second coming. Those we call distinctives because they don't determine whether or not we're born again and on our way to heaven. But the essentials of the faith, we need to, in the words of Jude, we need to contend earnestly for the truth. We need to be faithful as stewards, as stewardesses, we need to be in, put in trust with this gospel. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.4, As I have been allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so I speak, not pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. See, I think that the current trends are more apt to please men. Like, well, we, we don't want to be uninformed about postmodernism and this and that, so we want to be kind of in step with our culture. Well, if it's to communicate truth, that's okay. But if we start to then take up anchor and float along with our culture, then we deny our stewardship. Does that make sense? So we're talking about the essentials of the faith we need to not compromise on, we need to be confident in. Page 2. When we talk about unity, we're not talking about what's called the ecumenical movement, the idea that all believers should get together and not really worry about doctrine, to just come together and, and praise the Lord. And that sounds good. But the unity that Christ prayed for in John 17 is based on a true saving knowledge of Him, right? So some ecumenical meetings, uh, people are together in, in being in the name of Christian, and yet many of them don't mm -hmm. receive the gospel. So they're, 
they're trying to get together to have an external unity without that unity being based on a saving relationship well, with Christ. Well, they've moved beyond Christian now. Now it's, you know, by Jews and Muslims and, you know. But even an inter- interfaith ecumenical thrust. Don't you yeah. think also one thing that has given the church the black eye to uh, the world around us is because we argue over the, the distinctive and we make it the, the majority between the churches and and it, it causes man, it causes a lot of problems and we shouldn't even go there with our sister churches going to areas you know and, because if we squabble and fuss over distinctives, then those outside will think, you know, why are they so, yeah. they so negative, and and they miss the essentials, which right. is really what it's all about. Right. Good right. point. Um, so there's our verse from James 1:19, uh, referring uh, about uh, being swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to be angry, and sometimes too, people can have a flesh fit, arguing over doctrine, and that's not glorifying right. to God. Uh, it does more harm than good. Second thing I'd like to emphasize is the importance of truth in personal ministry. How does truth relate to your ministry as a disciple or as a counselor? Jude, I think it's chapter one, um, verse three. Are you with me? Okay. Um, says this. Let's read it together in unison. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So there's a sense of finality here. God's word is entrusted to you and me, and we are to be stewards, steward it says. And it says that part of our responsibility is to protect it and to uh, defend it. And so in the early centuries of the Christian church, we have what we call apologists doesn't mean they went around apologizing for everything. But the Greek word apologia is to defend or to give an answer. It's based on the passage in First Peter where it says that be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, you know, for the reason of the hope that you have. But notice it says do it in a spirit of meekness or gentleness and fear, not in a proud, arrogant, divisive way. So in the early centuries of the church, these uh, prominent Christian leaders and writers would defend the Christian faith from... from uh, the secular authors who would criticize our faith, they would they would defend it and write very scholarly uh, papers defending our faith. So uh, they were called apologists, and so they they obviously had a view that truth is a stewardship and it deserved being defined and defended, but not so in our current culture. Uh, our culture today is everything is relative, and if you say that this is true, someone was likely to say, well, that's true for you. It's not necessarily true for me. We call that relativism or being subjective. And so, ironically, it seems that the only thing that our culture says you can be absolutely confident is absolutely true is that there's no absolute truth. Which is inconsistent, right? That's a logical fallacy. To say that I'm absolutely confident and know it's true that there's no absolute truth. Well, that's a self-contradiction. Ravi Zacharias and others like Josh McDowell, do such a good job with that theme. The ultimate counselor is true, isn't he? And since it's all about God, it's not all about us, because he is true, we need to be truthful in counseling. And so uh, these verses here, which we won't take time to look up, you can look up these verses about God being true, it's impossible for him to lie. The Lord Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And... uh, he says in John 17 that this really is a stewardship. Let's, let it, let's take a look at John 17. Uh, that's one passage that seems to be good to open our Bibles to. Because here I'd like to emphasize the intergenerational aspect of truth, that we need to pass it on to uh, the next generation. John 17, as you remember, this is Christ's high priestly prayer. In John 17, 8, the Lord says, For I have given to them, meaning his disciples, the words which you have given me. So he's talking about objective revelation, the words that you, Father, have given me. And they have received them and have known, there's the word know again, surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So here we see actually that the Father has entrusted the truth to the Lord Jesus, he's speaking here in his humanity, 
And he says that he has passed it on to the disciples. They have received it as truth. And now if we go over to verse 20, John 17, 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And if we uh, carry that generation to generation, doesn't that refer to you and me today? Yeah. We have received the truth because of the stewardship of faithful believers who have gone before us and because of people like uh, William Tyndale who is willing to lay down his life to put the Bible in the language that we can read today. So um, we likewise need to see truth as a stewardship, not just as something that's subjective and can be reinvented. So the Lord Jesus is true. He spoke truth. The Holy Spirit is true. He's called the Spirit of Truth. If you do a, if you do a concordant study on truth, boy, you'll get a heap of verses to, to look at. I've given you some here. God's Word is true. Um, clerical error here. I meant to say John 10.35. God's written Word is true. John 10.35 is where Jesus says that the Word cannot be broken. So the Lord is referring to the authority of Scripture. Sanctify them through thy word, uh, through thy truth, thy word is truth, John 17. So that's, that should be enough evidence right there that we need to be truthful and truth-based because God is truth. But also you, as a human disciple-maker, counselor, need to believe the truth and practice the truth. Amen? Mm-hmm. So for example, um, as Samuel exhorts the people of Israel, serve God in truth. David the king uh, to Solomon as he begins his reign. You know, walk before God in truth. Uh, John 4, worship God in spirit and truth. 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love rejoices in the truth. So on and on we can go. Put on the belt, um, well, the armor, uh, the fruit of the spirit is uh, also in in uh, truth. And then Ephesians 6, put on the belt of truth and you know, gird your loins. So we need to, for example, speak the truth, meditate on it, just let it soak in. By the way, the difference between Eastern meditation and biblical meditation is that Eastern meditation seeks to empty the mind by maybe having like a Hindu mantra where you're repeating something, emptying the mind. But then, unfortunately, uh, demonic influence can come in and fill that vacuum. And uh, just a sidebar here, some of the contemplative spirituality that's being written about today is moving that direction. We actually even use a scripture verse, kind of like a mantra, but the goal is not to meditate and, like a diamond, look at the different facets of it, but it's saying, just let it empty your mind, you know, just kind of be in touch with, you know, nothing. And then that, that's supposed to be a contemplative spirituality. But see, that's, that's really a, an Eastern view of meditation. And that's not spiritual, that's being vulnerable. So, Psalm 1, you know, the, the godly, wise person is one who's going to meditate on God's Word day and night, and therefore is fruitful. Does that make sense? Biblical meditation is like a, chow, a cow chewing its cud, if I can use a nature analogy. You know, just keep, keep uh, thinking about it and ruminating in a positive sense, and uh, you'll get blessed and fed, won't you? Arm yourself with truth. Correct falsehood with truth. Galatians 3. Paul is, is not worrying about whether he might offend someone. He's not being offensive, but he says in Galatians 3.1, You foolish Galatians, who has tricked you? Who has bewitched you? You know, Christ has been portrayed as crucified, and now you've been led away from the truth. Well, obviously, Paul is believing in absolute truth, and they've gotten off track into legalism with the Judaizers, and he's saying, Come on back. This is, this is the path, and you're off the path. He's using the scripture that way for correction, for rebuke, for correction, and then instruction in righteousness. So, um, Paul believed in the exchanged life. Amen? <laughs> he wrote about it. He lived it. So, exchange life counseling is not going to compromise with this idea of subjective um, relative truth, but we're going to see that it is absolute. Interpret God's word of truth accurately. And, uh, 2 Timothy 2.15 is the one that says, Be diligent, study to show yourself approved to God so you can rightly handle the word of truth. So the more you continue to study God's word and apply it to your life, then as you disciple someone, as you lead them through the Christ-centered process, could I say it this way, the Holy Spirit has more of a repertoire, you know, to remind you and say, You know that verse you were reading yesterday? This would fit right here. Oh, thanks, Lord. And then, because you're in the word, he can use that. Um, in your ministry. So again, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 
Uh, just put a star next to that one. If you don't have it memorized, uh, consider it homework. <laughs> it's really a key verse in this whole topic we're looking at. Counselees are hindered by deception. Eve was in the beginning, wasn't she? Tricked by the enemy. Um, John chapter 8, verse 44. Let me read that about uh, the enemy, about Satan. John 8, 44. Christ is rebuking those who are resisting the Holy Spirit. He says in John 8:44, "You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks a lie. He speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it." Here, our Lord Jesus Himself, the embodiment of truth, is saying, "Satan is a liar." And he's the father of lies. There's no truth in him. So when leaders today are saying that there is no such thing as absolute truth and it's narrow-minded and so forth to, to be dogmatic about truth, they're actually violating their own Christian loyalty to Jesus who had that kind of definitive, authoritative statement about what is true and what is false. That part of the whole ecumenical movement is that we are all children of God. Mm-hmm. And Jesus right here is, is saying that the, the Pharisees were not children of God. I mean, he, he's plainly laying out that we're not all children of God. Okay. So again, this is a doctrine. Doctrine is another word for teaching. And we need to know the truth. So our, our Christian life as an individual, as a family member, as a minister, is going to flow out of truth. So doctrine is the foundation, and then we build our, our beliefs and, and life and ministry on that. So, an example, as Michael said, that there is this divide. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. First John 5.12 Let's go on then. In counseling, it has to do with correcting people, and that means that you are a steward or stewardess of truth, and you're in love. We're not saying do it in a proud, arrogant, divisive way, but in love you're going to be correcting them. And that's uh, a lot of what counseling is about. Number three, biblical truth and its application is being attacked from all sides. And I've mentioned that in the introduction. But now let's take a closer look because if you're going to be a steward or a stewardess of truth and counseling, you need to be aware of how truth is being attacked in our, our day. Let's start with attacks from outside of Christendom. We talked about the ecumenical movement saying everyone is a child of God, which is a false doctrine, but a very common concept. Uh, false religions. In step one of the Freedom of Christ inventory, we saw that we need to renounce false religions, renounce Christian cults like Jehovah's Witness or Mormonism, um, and also uh, renounce the occult, which is the quest for spiritual knowledge and power apart from God. 1 Timothy 4, 1-3 makes no apology about predicting that in the last days this will get worse and worse. And 2 Timothy has a similar warning. Watch out for doctrines of demons. Doctrines of demons? Well, someone who doesn't believe in absolute truth would be offended by that. Well, that's okay. Let the truth offend. It's about truth. It's not about our feelings or our preferences. Um, when we lived in Canada, we saw a, uh, a station on, I think it was on... Uh, uh, CBC or something. It was called Inventing Your Own Religion. Uh, wow. They're even titling the program that? But that's true. It was like a smorgasbord. Okay, you pick out what you want to believe. You invent your own religion. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's kind of a, a very blatant example of humanism. That's what it is. Religion, not salvation. That's right. Yeah. It's not salvation. It's religion. So, we have these attacks. Colossians 2, verse 8 says, Beware of philosophy and empty deception. So uh, philosophy itself is considered um, you know, loving knowledge and studying knowledge, but um, philosophy in the sense of trying to figure out the big scheme of things apart from God's Word is futile because it's like someone trying to, to uh, use a map without a compass and without knowing where they're going and where, where, the, uh, where they're starting from. So uh, humanistic philosophy, they may touch on truth here and there, but it's almost you know, random because they don't have a biblical worldview and they don't have a compass uh, to guide them. God's word and his truth is that, that compass, isn't it? Uh, really, philosophy is what postmodernism is about. So let me define terms, and, and uh, I'm not an expert on this, but 
um, before the scientific age, um, there would be a worldview that would emphasize the reality of God, objective truth, there is an absolute right and wrong, and so um, the days of John uh, Newton and others, you know, the the early days of science had this worldview. Um, but then along comes uh, Charles Darwin, and you have the shift toward uh, man being the center through the Enlightenment and other things. And so um, when the the scientific age comes, that's considered modernism, where they thought with with our technology, with our with our advanced uh, ability to learn. Science is going to save the day. You know, we can we split the atom and we can put a man on the moon. If we are able to accumulate enough knowledge, then man can can bring in utopia. Well, after two world wars and a lot of other things, um, this idea of of uh, modernism started to fall out of favor. And then post or after modernism became in and postmodern and postmodernism is the idea that that we don't have absolute truth. And let's not even try to argue or defend it because we can't absolutely know truth. So what may be true for me is not necessarily true for you. So post or after modernism is saying no absolute truth, no absolute right and wrong. And that's that's really our culture. You may not see it by that title, but if you watch sitcoms or movies or TV, you see it's just coming all the time, people doing their own thing. And the only thing that's considered uh, objectionable in current culture is someone saying, I believe the Bible because it's true. Uh, someone says, that, oh, you're a bigot, you know, and then you get you get marginalized because that's the only truth they agree to is that Bible-believing Christians are, are narrow-minded. Um, so that's the idea of postmodernism really is a philosophical view of life, and it's not something you maybe hear a lot about, but you see it in the culture more and more. The way I taught that in my congregation, because everybody watches Seinfeld, um, the mantra of Seinfeld is not that there's anything wrong with that. You know, they, they make a pronouncement like homosexuality, not that there's anything wrong with that. And that's postmodern. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. So you see it illustrated in, in the media and the entertainment. And so it's, it's ironic that that uh, a ministry and we've done this had uh, exchange life conference for those struggling with the homosexuality and seeing God set, set them free. It's interesting that that um, the gay rights movement will will picket and and uh, be militant against a seminar trying to help people with unwanted homosexuality. And so what they're doing is saying, you know, be tolerant. <laughs> is there a contradiction there? You know. So again, there's an inconsistency. Right, because they want the world not only there that it to be legal, but it could be should be approved. And if you don't approve of uh, of this um, lifestyle or that lifestyle, then you're the one who's narrow-minded. And it's ironic that they can picket and things uh, picketing for tolerance when they are being intolerant of people who have unwanted homosexuality. Anyway, that's I'm on a rabbit trail now. Letter B. There are also attacks from within Christendom. And uh, perhaps these are the most dangerous because they come under the umbrella of Christianity. And uh, Roman Catholicism. Um, again, the ecumenical movement is, is really moving evangelicals and Catholics closer and closer. There are documents about Catholics and evangelicals in accord, and they're looking for for words they can agree on where they can each kind of meet with the wording of a certain document. But Rome has made it very clear that they're not going to change their their historic beliefs one iota. Uh, they want the separated brethren, you know, Protestants, to come back to the Mother Church. So they'll deploy people to have all these dialogues and to come up with agreements. But remember, words are like containers, right? So if they find a container that will contain the the Catholic traditions and theology and some form of evangelical theology, we might think, isn't that great, you know, unity? But we're realizing it's two different ingredients in that same container. So watch out for these documents that that seem like um, unity is being accomplished, but really uh, compromise is being done. So if, if you're counseling someone as Roman Catholic, don't assume they're unsaved. We're not saying that Everyone in the Baptist church is saved and everyone in the Roman Catholic church is unsaved. But we're saying that 
that whether someone is, is Protestant or Catholic, only true faith in the true Jesus is what saves. So, an article I, I read years ago in a magazine, or a, uh, I guess it was Christianity Today or something, mentioned three principles that I have here for you that I'd like for you to remember. If you're talking to a Catholic neighbor or you're counseling someone who's Roman Catholic and you want to convey to them uh, what evangelicals believe and why, if you remember these three principles, it really will help. And there's so many things you could talk about, you know, Mary or the sacraments, but these three principles really help. Number one, the question is uh, ultimate authority. How do you know what is right or wrong? How do you know what is true or false? Rome would say that tradition of the Mother Church establishes what is true. <coughs> and the Pope, when he speaks officially, is the official uh, spokesman of that truth. So, so the, uh, the traditions, the councils, the Pope, they are the final arbiter of truth. Well, what do we believe as those uh, since the Reformation? We believe that what is the basis of truth? God's Word, right? So God's Word is above the church. That's why Revelation 2 and 3, out of the seven churches that receive letters, five of the seven have major problems and the Lord corrects them through His Word. Whereas the church is saying that the church is above the Bible, the Bible is is something that is a gift of the church and the church is the one authorized to interpret it. And that's why the early translators of the Bible had, uh, were martyred under that, that uh, philosophy that the church was above the Bible and uh, they could keep it in Latin and keep it in the hands of the priest instead of the laity. So um, keep that in mind. That's why Luther... Didn't you see the movie about Luther that came out a few years ago? Good film. But when, when Luther was uh, under investigation by the official uh, Catholic Council. It was called the Diet of Worms. Diet of Worms. Doesn't sound good, does it? But um, that's what they call it, a council at the German city of, of uh, W-O-R-M-S. And as he was, in, he was interrogated, they said, you need to renounce your writings, Luther, um, because you're saying things that are, that are contrary to our Catholic doctrine. And remember, in that day, if you were excommunicated from the church, then there was no way of salvation. This was a big deal. So Luther asked for a, another night to pray about it, and he comes back and he says, paraphrasing now, that if you can show me uh, from the Word of God, from the Bible, where anything I've written is false, I'm willing to correct it. But unless you can show me from the words, even if it's the view of, of councils or the Pope, I cannot change, here I stand. Amen. That famous phrase, here I stand. Luther took a stand on the Word of God. He was almost killed going home from that council, but uh, Elector Frederick, I think his name was, a, a prince of Germany, whisked him off to his castle. I mean, church history can be exciting. <laughs> whisked him off to his castle, and nobody knew where he was, and guess what Martin Luther did during those months? He translated the Bible into German. And through translating the Bible, the New Testament, into German, that became a huge blessing in the life of the German people to study the Bible in their language and to grow the church and actually really help the German language as well because of its definitive role there. So ultimate authority is the first issue. The second one is, is salvation by grace or is it uh, through a mixture of faith and works? Well, Rome would say that faith is, is required, but also works are required. So it's a combination of grace and works. Um, so notice Ephesians 2, for by grace you are saved through Faith, and not of yourselves, it is the yeah. gift of God. So the New Testament is clear that, that saving faith will produce the fruit of good works, but the basis of our faith is the finished work of Christ. And so the Reformers, Luther and others, would say, sola scriptura, the word of God is our authority. Sola fide, it's by faith alone. And also, sola, I don't, I don't know how you pronounce it in Latin, gratia or grace, um, that it's by grace alone. That's our third point here. Uh, salvation by grace. Well, Rome will concede that salvation is by grace, but here's, here's the difference. If you imagine um, maybe a fountain or something with seven pipes coming out of it, you might say that this is a fountain of grace, but you have to get grace from one of these seven or all of these seven pipes that come out of the fountain. There's the seven sacraments of Rome are dispensers of grace. 
And although grace is required, you have to get the grace through the sacraments of Rome. See that? So, we're saying that the New Testament is clear. 1 Timothy chapter 2. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So, God says not only are we saved by grace through faith, but that grace comes directly through the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't become a Jew to become a Christian. You don't become a member of a certain church to get grace. You come directly to God through His Son. Acts 4.12 Neither is there salvation in any other. But there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen? Amen. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but these are these are three uh, principles, and it really will help define some concepts. I've used it over the years where you don't uh, uh, look at specific issues because there's an emotional loyalty, you know, if someone's Catholic, about veneration of Mary or using the rosary or something. And rather than dealing with specifics, which they may want to defend, if you can deal with the fundamental foundation. And if they can shift over to a, a Bible as their authority, salvation by grace through faith, and that grace through, directly through Christ, then that's really what's going to help them validi- uh, have validity of their salvation and grow. And that's what counts. Let God convict them of the other things um, as they go along. Any questions about uh, Roman Catholicism? It's a huge topic. But uh, liberalism. And we're not talking about political parties here, but here we're talking about theological liberalism, which is basically how mainline denominations have very often wanted to keep the traditions of the gospel, have the liturgy, uh, have the prayers, and the ethics of Jesus, but minimize the doctrine. And so instead of actually teaching the message of the cross, even the first dimension of the cross, salvation, Christ died for us, and that you have to personally receive Him as Savior. Instead, they assume everyone is a believer. Have you noticed that? If you go to yeah. a mainline church, there's some things they say that are biblical and helpful. And if you're born again, yeah, that, that's good. But they assume everyone is saved. And so sometimes they hear the testimony of someone who has been in a church for, for many years, 30, 40 years, and they've been baptized as a baby, they've they remember the church, but they never understood the gospel. That being good is not the same as being a Christian. We need to be born again, like Nicodemus asked the Lord Jesus. So liberalism is the tendency of mainstream Christianity, even so-called Protestants, to minimize the gospel or totally overlook it, and think that we can have the ethics of the faith without having the relationship which brings salvation. So typically they would minimize the Bible, or even say that the Bible is... Uh, Interesting for history's sake or illustrative, but it's not authoritative. When we lived in uh, Ontario, Canada, pastors had terms writing for the local newspaper, and so I always enjoyed that opportunity to get the truth out. But I remember one, uh, one Easter season, an article from a pastor in a neighboring community from a uh, liberal church described uh, the meaning of Christ's death for us, and I thought, boy, this looks good. And then he says, but I don't believe that. I mean, it's not just that it's overlooked. Sometimes they'll actually oppose the gospel. He actually went through a description about about man's sin and Christ's death for us, and and it's, but but I don't believe that. So sometimes it's not just a subtle overlooking of the doctrine, but it's actually opposing the gospel. Liberalism, neo-orthodoxy. I mentioned earlier, orthodoxy, the idea of biblical. Um, uh, uh, essentials of the faith. Um, Chesterton wrote a book called Orthodoxy where he, he de- defended uh, the faith. Uh, Neo-Orthodoxy, the idea that, that this is a, a new take on Orthodoxy where the Bible can become the Word of God, but it's not objectively the Word of God. Karl Barth, um, uh, Boltzmann, and, and others. And that's having a comeback because it fits more into this postmodern culture. Hence the prop from my previous seminary that I graduated from, writing a book promoting Bart in his theology. By the way, I was looking at great Christian books. You'd think I would know better than to go home after one of our long days we're having this week and start looking at a Christian book catalog. Still couldn't resist. No, I had to go through the whole catalog. And there was a whole set of, you know, the theology of Karl Bart right there, you know, alongside John MacArthur, you know. So be, be aware that just because it's in Great Christian book catalog doesn't mean it's, uh, it's biblical and orthodox. 
Let us see. The attack from within evangelicalism, evangelical meaning gospel preaching, Bible-believing Christianity, postmodernism's influence. We've touched on it already. The uh, emergent village is a group within the emerging church, and not all of the emerging church is wrong. They have a, an emphasis on being missional and being relevant, and that's that's okay. But when it's compromising, that's the problem. The process of doing theology replaces fidelity to biblical doctrine because they believe if you take a stand and are dogmatic that uh, you're being insensitive to our culture. Um, when you study systematic theology in Bible college or seminary or on your own, um, that treatment of theology is called systematic because it looks at the nature of God, the nature of man, the nature of salvation, you know, last things, the doctrine of the church, and it compiles what the Bible says in each of these themes. Well, that really rubs the uh, emerging village folks the wrong way. They go, you know, how arrogant for us to categorize, you know, biblical truth and be dogmatic on it. Well, that's not arrogant. That's being being uh, faithful to the truth of God's word. So, uh, but they think the idea of doing theology has a nobility to it, and really, uh, they're being unfaithful to their stewardship. If we just want to be blunt about it, this attitude of uncertainty is interpreted as relating to the culture. It almost it's almost noble to have this. Well, we don't really know, you know. But we can we can empathize and kind of walk in this journey together. Um, one of the uh, papers I refer you to, which you can get on the internet, is one by uh, Brett Kundal, Essential Concerns Regarding the Emerging Church, presented at the Evangelical Theological Society. Very scholarly work here. And he mentions uh, his concern about their reinterpreting the cross, their diminishing the nature of truth, and their minimizing the authority of Scripture. And he describes, Brian McLaren describes in the book, the story we find in ourselves in. Again, the idea of narrative is popular because narrative is, n is not as much of a teaching aspect. But in this book, there's an imaginary dialogue with someone who he's talking about the cross, and he says, that sounds to me like divine child abuse. And the Christian uh, who is witnessing to him doesn't, doesn't answer, doesn't correct them. You know, so they float out these, these skeptical questions without giving a solid biblical answer. Um, let me see, let me give you another example. Uh, the same author in the Emerging Church Movement, Emerging Village, um, he described, this is a real encounter, describes an encounter with George, a parishioner in his church. George believes in God, but by his own admission, is still no closer to believing in Jesus Christ, because Jesus doesn't make sense, particularly his death on the cross. George asks, uh, Brian, Brian being the author of the book, why did Jesus have to die? I mean, this should be an elementary question, right, for those who are discipled and, and equipped. Upon hearing the question, McLaren is struck by two thoughts. First, George seemed to be asking the question in a way that McLaren had never, <coughs> had never been asked. Secondly, McLaren does not think his Christian answers fit the way George is asking the question. McLaren asks George for two weeks to think about an answer. After wrestling with the question but finding no answer, the question was, why did Jesus have to die? So, Pastor McLaren asks for two weeks. He comes back. After wrestling with the question but finding no answer, McLaren shares the dilemma with his brother Peter, saying, a couple of weeks ago I realized that I don't know why Jesus had to die. This is a man who's speaking to Christian denominations, Protestant denominations. His brother quickly responded, well, neither did Jesus. I think he's talking about Gethsemane, or why have you forsaken me, reinterpreting that to say that Jesus didn't understand why. What about Jesus saying, I give my life a ransom yeah, for many, yeah. but this is the reason I have come. Yeah. See, it's like they're ignorant of the scriptures because it's so into being culturally, quote, culturally relevant. So if you get the article, um, I encourage you to read more about it so you can see why I'm burdened with this talk today to say that we are to be stewards of truth. We're not to be those who are, have a hobby of uh, doing theology thinking that the end justifies the means because the truth is what transforms. Amen? Amen. The truth and God's Word, the Gospel, the Cross, the Word of God is what transforms. So um, uh, you see here some comments I make along that line that in 1 Corinthians 9, 
Paul says, I become all things to all men, remember that passage, that I can reach as many as possible. And that part of, you might call it contextualizing the gospel, is helpful. If I can just elaborate on that. We're not saying that we shouldn't be sensitive to our culture in terms of teaching methods and things like that. But Paul says, when I go into a Jewish synagogue, what am I going to start with? I'm going to start with the Hebrew Scriptures, right? And leave them to understanding about the Messiah. But when Paul was on Mars Hill in Athens, did he start with the book of Genesis? No, he said, I was walking around Athens here, and I saw a statue that says, to the unknown God, you know, in case you missed one, you know, to the unknown God. He says, I want to speak to you about this God. You know, and he talks about the witness of nature. Yes, he comes to the point of the gospel where God, how's that verse go? That God has uh, commanded all men everywhere to repent, for he has set a day in which he will judge the earth, uh, mankind through righteousness by the man whom he has appointed, giving proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So Paul does give the unchanging gospel, but he starts from a different context. So that's valid. The Lord Jesus, when he approached the Samaritan woman, you know, uh, could I have a drink of water? Well, um, you know, then he says, well, if you were to ask, you know, I would, I could offer you living water. Living water? And so, you know, the wonderful passage of how he takes that context to lead her to uh, her profession of faith. Uh, with Nicodemus, you know, it was a new birth. It wasn't about more religious laws. It was about a new beginning, Nicodemus. And pointing it back to the imagery of, of that bronze serpent on the cross. And if people looked, they would live. And so there, Nicodemus could understand the gospel. So, contextualizing the message, that's fine. But compromising is, uh, is what we need to warn against. Could you read with me Second Peter 1, verses 19 to 21? So we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Again, this is why we can affirm and rely upon the Scriptures. But even within the exchange life counseling movement, I mentioned that there is a tendency to adjust to, uh, toward what we prefer rather than what the Bible actually says. For example, we have to be careful that we don't minimize God's holiness and justice in favor of his love. A popular speaker says that his whole ministry emphasis is proclaiming the love of God. And after I heard this speaker teach uh, for quite a while, I realized that although what he said about the love of God was wonderful, it was like, um, you know if you have a picture, you can get a mat on that picture? Imagine if you had a, a picture that's really large and the mat was so big you only got a small part of the picture. What he said was true, but he was missing the rest of the revelation. For example, he said, when he was talking about sin, basically he conveyed the idea that the only reason God doesn't want you to sin is he knows it will hurt you. Well, that's very loving and it appeals to us. Oh, isn't that nice? He doesn't want me to be hurt. But is that the only reason that God says we are not to sin? Be holy for what? I am holy. And uh, so God's holiness and justice are not to be compromised. So, um, what else here? Uh, a prominent Christian leader in the Grace Movement heard say, the Holy Spirit no longer convicts the believer of sin. Another writer said, an exchange life writer, that sin is no longer an issue for the Christian because all of our sins were pardoned at, at the cross. Well, it's true that all of our sins were pardoned, but as Paul gave that analogy yesterday, which I think is helpful, in John 13, Christ washing the disciples' feet, he gets to Peter, remember? Peter says, no, Lord, I'm embarrassed, don't wash my feet. The Lord says, what you'll, you know, you'll understand this later. Peter says, no, and then Christ says that, uh, you know, I have to wash your feet. Peter says, then wash my hands and my head, you know, with his typical zeal. The Lord says, if you've had a bath, you don't need to have another bath, you just need your feet washed. And I think in a similar way, our pardon is our once-for-all baptism of cleansing. We are pardoned. There's no condemnation. But throughout the New Testament epistles, sin is a factor. It is a warning. It is a danger. That's why we have so many exhortations about it. And in Revelation 2 and 3, the Lord rebukes five of the seven churches to repent. 
So we are to not minimize the need to repent. We are not to minimize the need to agree with God when we sin and ask for His cleansing. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says that if we set apart ourselves for God, say, Lord, here I am, it says that we will be a vessel ready for the Master's use and we will be cleansed and available for the Master's use. So uh, we just need to have a balanced view. And You know, if you're working on your car, like I was with a friend of mine a while back, uh, putting in some spark plugs, he did the work and I held the flashlight. But um, if, if you work on your car and you get done and you have about six pieces left over, you think, uh-oh, where did they go? You know? So if we, if we are teaching a doctrine, it sounds right, but then you look at other scriptures and say, well, these, these have been left over. These, these contradict the message, but they were ignored. That's the problem. When you interpret scripture in context, it means the, the immediate context in the chapter, the book context, and the biblical context. And if it is interpreted right, then it will um, not be contradicted by a left-over verse. So, yeah. Don, one thing that Mike and I, we were just talking about is, as pastors, boy, you can really get criticized in this right here. It says minimizing God's holiness and justice in favor of his love. And a lot of people, we've been approached, well, you know, about God's grace. And, you know, we know God's grace and, and all that. But there's some things you do as pastors that you have to do to protect the congregation. And legally, plus uh, with with all the uh, pedophiles and, and homosexuality and everything that's coming in, sometimes as pastors you have to make decisions in view of the whole congregation, not just as an individual. And we have had to make some of those decisions. And people want to use this, the grace thing to say, well, yeah, but, you know, God's grace. And we say, well, wait a minute here. You know, we still have to understand the holiness and, and, and protection that that means when it comes to underage kids and stuff like that. And that is a, that's a big assault on the church nowadays. Uh, we were told by uh, our insurance and uh, by a, a lawyer from Lighthouse Legal Ministries that the number one assault on the church now um, uh, is the, the, the people that have been caught for abusing children, that the church is the wide open area now to get children. And uh, so, you know, we've, we've had to make some uh, policies in the church yeah. And uh, but, but the thing is, is, is understanding. Yeah, we understand grace, but you know there has to be. Some so the place for having those policies to protect the church. Matthew 18 talks about church discipline again. The idea is the whole context. By the way, speak to Pastor Jeff about that. They've done some good work on on having a, a policy to protect um, the children in the church. So uh, sometimes it has to be tough love, not just soft love. Another way you could say it. So Hebrews 12 talks about uh, reverence and fear of the Lord in a, in a healthy sense of the term. And, and sometimes in the grace, grace movement, the emphasis is so much on love that, that God has spoken spoken about in two in a very flippant, casual way. And I don't think that they're in touch with who God really is if they uh, speak about Him and to Him in a, in a flippant way. Is there an Abba Father relationship? Yes. But He is also the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Does that make sense? Yeah. We need to balance. Also, um, we need to be careful not to criticize character development, the role of conscience, um, re criticizing repentance, confession, or the legal, legal meaning of Christ's atonement. I heard one of the great teachers also, um, with his postmodern influence, I guess, um, object to the legal interpretation. He's saying, well, that's one, but there are other ones. You know, again, there's a shift even within our ranks toward reinterpreting the gospel. Well, we don't want to de-emphasize the written word of God either. It needs to be in spirit and in truth. But uh, one great teacher said, when um, when Mary and Joseph looked at, at that cradle, or when the wise men came, or when uh, I should say the, the shepherds came there in Bethlehem, they didn't look in the manger and saw they didn't see a Bible in the manger. And that's true. Now, I think what he's trying to do is is to shock people into saying, let's be Christ-centered, not just Bible-centered. On the other hand, we wouldn't know that were the case were it not for the Bible <laughs> telling us of how. It was Christ in, in the manger, not the Bible. So, so we need to be careful that even though we want um, to avoid just a kind of a scholarly, um, academic view of Scripture, we don't want to minimize 
of what Psalm 119 is all about, that God's Word is to be loved and believed and, and applied. And if that was true in the Old Testament, how much more it should be in our lives as we see the New Covenant revealed. So um, may God give us wisdom to have a man-centered ministry, um, not to have a man-centered ministry. <laughs> You're paying attention, that's good. That wouldn't be truthful, would it? Okay. We are not to have a man-centered ministry. That word not is really important, isn't it? Or is it just subjective and I can do it if I want to no. know? But rather we are to have a God-centered ministry. Colossians 1, Christ needs to have the preeminence. So I trust you uh, will also benefit from some of the, uh, the resources mentioned there. But uh, we're out of time. Thank you for your attention about the importance of truth and counseling.